0: Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, wherever you are. This is our little podcast on the chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. I realise I didn't do a podcast last week. I'm getting done as and when I kind of remember to around work. So please bear with me. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the title of this is Living to Please God. And immediately you can see... Paul's letter is not about giving you what you want and having the best life that you can lead but living a life that pleases God And um, So the title alone on this chapter heading is a challenge and I think you might realise that it's also a big challenge to our way of life and how we interpret scripture in our way of life so what we're going to do we're going to read it in three chunks if you'd like to pause and read the first eight verses and if you just write down what stands out to you and what challenges you and i will tell you what i got so the first thing that really stood out to me in the first eight verses is this this note that paul says that you should continue to live as you were instructed so it's clear that paul has already written to the Thessalonian church, established the Thessalonian church and taught them something about how to live to please God. Now, he doesn't say specifically here what that is, but we can imagine if you read the Beatitudes, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you read Matthew 5, 6 and 7, if you read some of the other letters Paul writes about how to behave, what God wants you to do, what it is like to be more like God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, You'll go, right, that is how the early church were being instructed to live. And he wants them to continue to do that. In fact, he continues in verse 1 to say, we urge you to do it more. In the name of Jesus, to do it more and more. And the second thing that jumped out to me about this is that is this idea of being sanctified. He says in verse 3 that you should be sanctified. He says in verse 7, that you should have a holy life. And the notion of being holy and set apart means that you're not acting and behaving and living like the rest of the world. And that's tough. And Paul's example here is that the rest of the world, particularly in Thessaloniki, in, in the Macedonian world, in Greece, they were living according to their desires Whatever your body desires You should please your body with that desire And the, the thing he brings up here is sexual immorality We can't get away from it, it's here <laughs> And nowadays it's a big thing Sexual immorality is a big thing If you are feeling it, you should have it If it feels right, you should do it But Paul says in verse 4 You should learn to control your body in a way that is holy there it is again an honourable set apart not in passionate lust because people who behave that way don't know God because if you are just behaving in passionate lust you are just behaving as you want to behave and not for love of others and certainly not for love of God and then the third thing that jumped out to me is this bit in verse 8 anyone who rejects this instruction specifically talking about the sexual immorality thing does not reject a human being but is rejecting God the very God who gives you his holy spirit and that's really key if we have God God has given you his holy spirit and what that means is the holy spirit is in you part of you and it and the spirit will point you towards things and open your heart towards things and show you how to love and give and be more compassionate. Remember we talked before about the fruit of the spirit, these things, these behaviors that God comes for. So it's more of God and less of you. And this idea that if we reject this instruction, we're injecting God. Now I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Paul is suggesting that if you have sexually sinned, or even if recently you've done that, that you have utterly rejected God. I don't think he's specifically saying that, because that's just saying, well, you've done that, you're condemned forever. He's saying, if you go, no, I don't think that's true, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do exactly what I want with my body, and you can't tell me otherwise. If you outright rejected this instruction continuously, you are rejecting God continuously, and the Holy Spirit can't be in you. If you mess up, we mess up. And that's where forgiveness, that's where the cross comes in. Um, So next next chunk, pause it and let's read verses 9 to 12. So what stands out to you about verses 9 to 12? So again, we have this repetition where Paul is talking about how much the church loves each other. And he says, we don't even need to write to you about how, how much we love each other. And yet again, he says, do more of that. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more. Paul wants us to take all the things we do that are loving, that are compassionate, that are kind, and rather than go, sorry, Sorry, I got interrupted, Um, rather than tick a box and say, yep, I've done my good deed for the day, I feel good, I've I've been nice and kind and loving, what do I get for it? He says, no, 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 be even more loving, be even more kind, be even more giving, like, don't just find one person that they to be kind to, to give to. Just you, don't stop seeing people to be kind to. And there's a bit in the Gospels where Jesus says to to his disciples, "Don't just forgive someone seven times as the law dictates; forgive them seventy times that, as if to say, don't just do the bare minimum that is required to tick a box. Don't just do the religious ticking of the boxes. Do ever more." just like your father in heaven has continuously given ever more ever more ever more do more of the loving things that we are congratulating you about and the second bit of this chunk these three verses that really stood out to me is this, this idea of make it your ambition to lead a quiet life you should mind your own business clearly the Greek world and the ancient Jewish world was full of people who knew everybody's business This is a culture, this is a society that didn't have private houses like we do today, but that lived very close and everybody knew everybody's business. And there was gossip and all sorts of delicious stuff like that. And in their world, just like today, people wanted to be rich and famous, they wanted to be known, they wanted to be recognized. Nothing's changed. For the Christian though, And in a church like Thessaloniki, where Paul is saying so many wonderful things about them, he's saying, remember, lead a quiet life. That doesn't mean be a quiet person. It means don't live a life that is trying to draw all the attention and fame and glory onto yourself. Because once again, that's not living to please God, that's living to please yourself. When he says you should mind your own business, I think he's saying a couple of things here. The first thing is, is don't get involved in gossiping and slandering and bringing down other people. That's really hard to do, by the way, because it immediately makes you feel better. If you tear down someone else, you can go, ha ha, I'm better than them. He's saying, no, no, no. Keep yourself to yourself when it comes to that. And also, it's very importantly, he's saying, he's kind of saying, mind your own business and work with your hands so that your life may win respect of outsiders and you're not to be dependent on anybody. And it immediately jumps into my third thought on here is that, If you mind your own business, you sort out your own business. You've sorted yourself out. And you are effectively taking the log out of your own eye rather than trying to, to heal the speck in your brother's eye. Do not be dependent on anybody. Now, just a note on that. He is not saying, be a big man. You don't need anybody. You're an island. Don't accept help from anybody. Don't ask for help from anybody. You're a man. What he's saying... And I really believe this. He's saying, make sure you have your house in order, your health in order, you are sensible with your relationships and with your money and your reputation so that you will not be dependent on anybody to the detriment of anybody. Because we know, and I'm sure you know people, who are... And I'm going to say needy, and I don't mean that if they need something, that's a bad thing. I'm going to say people who are needy, and they, they live under that character, that they are a needy person, and that they never sort themselves out, and they are always on at you to get something. And I really believe this is what he's saying about the church. He's saying don't be the kind of people that force other people... To help them to their detriment. It's great if you do need help. If you really do need help. Ask for help. Because the church are loving that way. But don't be dependent. And that means that dependent all the time. On anyone. Because that other person might need help. And if that other person needs help. And you're trying to get from them. That's going to hurt them. He's not trying to make the case. That we, we should be selfishly self-sufficient all the time because he lives in a very an area which is very poor but he's trying to get people to understand that they need to work hard and not be lazy and not just take from other people don't be the kind of person that refuses to get a job because the government will just hand you money don't be the kind of person that won't get a job because well their mum and dad will pay their way don't be that person be independent enough so that when Other people need help. You can give them help. You're not dependent on them. You can help them and it won't hurt you. You can disagree with me at any point, by the way. And we're nearly there. So if you would like to pause this and read from verse 13 to the end of chapter four. What stands out to you here? There's a lot in this next bit that jumps out. He obviously opens up with this idea about being uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now culturally, just like today There are lots of different opinions about what happened after death The Egyptians believed that the gods would weigh the deeds of your life Um, The Epicureans believed that the gods were very far away Very, very far away, or didn't exist, it didn't really matter So you should just live your life however you liked Who cares about death? Gods are far away Um, Plutarch, an ancient Greek believed that we had immortal souls and when we died our souls would float away now that is an opinion that a lot of um, modern Christians might hold but remember that's a Plutarch thing that's not Paul and that might be really challenging the Sadducees in ancient Jewish culture didn't believe that there was a resurrection and the Pharisees did so there's a lot of ideas about what's going to happen after death and Paul says If you don't know, when someone dies, you will grieve for them like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So that person's dead and you have no hope. You'll never see them again. They're gone. But, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He doesn't even use the word died we will see those people again. You have hope in death. So don't live like you have no hope. Death is sad. You can grieve, of course you should grieve, but grieve and then have hope. And there's a lot of this next few verses that have led to people being confused. And the key verse here is verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That verse and that verse alone is responsible for a lot of misunderstanding about the rapture, about the end of the world and going to heaven. Paul isn't talking about Disembodied souls floating in the clouds. And you know what? We know what happens if you go up and up and up into the clouds and you keep going, you end up in space. And if you go into space without a spacesuit, you just go up there and you. So Paul is using imagery. He's not being literal. Paul is drawing on images that you can see in Daniel, where one like a son of man descends on the clouds with a trumpet sound in glory. The idea of someone in the heavens like a man but more glorious than a man is an image used in the old testament paul is drawing on that to say hey that person that that we are imagining from daniel those books that we love and that we've learned from that will come back and then we will be like him because we will be with him and very importantly though it says we will caught up with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, it doesn't say we will go to heaven. It actually says the Lord will come down from heaven. So actually, rather than the key verse here being, oh, we're gonna go to heaven. It's much more much more important for that for our current world is that the Lord will come down from heaven. And then he uses that wonderful image of the one like the son of man, archangel, trumpet sound, And then we will be with him. That is the encouraging part. That God will come down to us. And we will be with him. There is this whole view. That the world that we live in. The world that the Lord created good in Genesis. And the world in which Revelation. We're promised that the Lord will renew. There will be a new heaven. A new earth. There's not a new earth because we're going away to heaven. There's going to be a new earth because God has come down. To dwell with his people forever. Don't get too caught up pun intended, with this image of us floating in the clouds, be caught up with the idea that God will come to us and so we will be with the Lord forever and encourage one another with those words.